As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode. Again, joining me is my co-host, someone you've become familiar with, Khadija Deej. And once again, it's an honor and privilege to have my teacher and mentor, Professor Grovergy. Thank you once again for joining us on The Malcolm Effect. How are you, Professor? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for welcoming me back and uh, happy to meet you, Khadija. Nah, it's an honor Lovely and privilege. So in our last episode, when we spoke about the legacy of Sokoture, one of the final questions I asked, we spoke about the role of the African intellectual today, and we didn't really go into it, but you mentioned that in the 1940s, Pan-Africanists from the diaspora congregated in Manchester with a central question, what is to be done? So my question is for 2023, Professor Grovergy, if you were going to chair a conference where African intellectuals were to gather, what are some of the things that will be on that agenda today? Thank, thank you very much for the question. I, I actually, it's a question, the sort of question that I don't want, I often don't want to answer because I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what kind of agenda to have for other people. But I will tell you a few things actually. That question cannot be answered unless you think first about what sort of questions we need to respond to. Because everybody in, Af in, in the African diaspora today seem to know what else us. Right, so we are all in the domain of speaking about our ailment, which is which is um, symptoms, the symptoms of our ill. Oh, right, everybody knows the symptoms. What we don't quite do well is actually post diagnosis. Diagnosis, right? I like to tell people that when you do symptoms, you are in the realm of the pathos because symptoms are pathologies. What ails me? I have this. I have that. When you do diagnosis, you are actually in the realms of Imagine what the cure is, then I associate that with sort of love, really, to, not to overuse the term. And of course, when you do diagnosis, you have to find out what solutions you want for yourself. What we haven't done too well in the African diaspora is actually think about institutions, think about the knowledge that we need for ourselves, and then think about the futures that we need for, for ourselves. And maybe I said that in a not particular order, but the order is first having real concrete imaginaries imaginaries like of what we want, giving ourselves the knowledge for that, and then giving ourselves the institutions to go toward those imaginaries. And I think we have not done those three too well, actually, honestly. Idija? That's quite a brilliant response to the question. And I, I suppose my question is a bit of a follow-up and tying in sort of the the sort of parts of the earlier conversation that I heard where you talked about the moods and the almost affective and psychic realms that exist and the sort of memory and that haunted memories that exist within the African condition. And I've always found it quite troubling to think about the context of my own native country, Ghana, and think about its revolutionary history and the legacies of its revolutionary history, which in this current moment seem completely in tatters and there is very little recognition of that. With the recognition that the work that needs to be done, that the symptoms and perhaps even the diagnosis need to consider beyond the structural, 
beyond what is immediately visible as the material conditions through which Africa is currently kind of stated. How do we deal with the mood? How do we deal with the effective legacy, the hauntings of colonialism that remain ever present in features of our society, in features of our memory, in, you know, in any engagement, if you've ever gone to school in Ghana, like I have, you were born in Ghana, if you talk to people about Ghanaian politics right now, there is that haunting. And how do we treat that haunting? How do we understand that haunting? How do we in, in, engage with it within our diagnosis in order to think about, think about our treatment? How do we access that? And I'm glad you talked about, about our revolutionary past and et cetera. One answer I've been giving lately is actually go to how we are taught. And this is going to be perhaps a bit long, but I, I, I'm going to make it short. I mean, this discipline called political science, whether it's in America, Great Britain, France, if you go to any political science department, you have four fields. If you are in Britain, you do British politics. British politics, they will tell you about everything from Magna Carta to today, right? What has happened and what they did. And then there are discussions in between, you know, slavery, the pillage of India, genocide here, and et cetera, famine. They don't figure in it because British politics is about British institutional development, right? And then you have political theory that comes in, in America, in France, everywhere. Political theory and political theory comes to tell you why those institutional development were so and why we should aim to amplify them and the ground and the predicate upon which those things are. And then you have international relations. International relations is what my friend Rob Walker, good Welshman, says is what tells Europeans, what gives Europeans the comfort to know that what they did over there was in discussion because it really matters is them. So it makes, right? So here we have democracy, we have freedom, we have Magna Carta, etc. There is a state of nature. We can go there and do whatever we want, and that's where we have realism, that's where we can drop the bombs, that's where we can all other stuff, right? It is almost a license to diminish the humanities of other people because we have the inside and the outside, right? And so if you do international relations, you learn realism, blah, 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 you almost go along with excusing, a lot of things that we not be excusing, empire, colonialism, enslavement, and et cetera, et cetera. You buy into that. And then when you do comparative politics, you are supposed to measure yourself up to what other people have achieved, right? What you are not told if you do that in political science is that you don't know our connections to, to the Greeks, to the great texts, you will not learn that Timbuktu did not just appear in, in Africa. It's connected to what happened in Andalusia. Andalusia happened because of the Abbasid Empire collapse and people migrated to Andalusia. When the Moors were defeated, they moved to Timbuktu. You don't see our connections to the world. You don't know that we imagine free speech in the fight between Balaf, Sunjata Keita and, 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 and when Sunjata Keita asked his buddy, his childhood friend, Balaf Asake, to join him, Balaf Asake said, and they, they actually made the pact in, in blood that there is a condition. The condition is that the ruler must know, the ruled must know, the ruler must know what the rules think of them. That is not free speech in the bourgeois sense, the right to say whatever is your mind, but it obligated those who govern to know what the those people who are governed think of them. It was actually to create an institutional context in which that is obligatory. We don't learn that uh, meritocracy began with the Mamluks in Egypt, in Africa, that we were the first and that a slave in the Mali Empire, the fourth emperor of Mali was actually a former slave, that a slave could be emperor, right? That meritocracy matters and et cetera. There's nothing in political science that allows you to, to grapple with Africa institutional development because it's all of it. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are. It simply is not. 
You know why? Because the disciplines in which we exist in Europe were all created to respond to a problem, a question, which is why there's a difference in between pre-17th century disciplines and post-17th century disciplines. The pre-17th century disciplines are all about the universal, mathematics, philosophy, linguistics, astronomy, blah, blah, blah. But there's a reason why geography is the first field that appears in, after the 17th century, because it was called the age of discovery. After geography, then you can, you can go down, anthropology, why it emerges. The concept of political economy doesn't enter language until, until the uh, British East India Company is created in 1600. We, we, cannot imagine, we cannot imagine political theory until after Jonestown is settled. Because the, the locks and et cetera, so have to give justification to that, what we call contract theory and et cetera, et cetera. We imagine all sorts of scenarios. Each one of those disciplines, until international relations, the last one, right? International law is not created. The departure from just gently to an international law legal regime is not created until the American Revolution, which is the first bridge in this unity of use gentium European, you know, this unified European customary law, which we call use gentium, right? Then you have America, you have 18. Right, uh, uh, 1785 is not an accident. That actually happened after those two revolutions. Every single discipline after the 17th century was created to answer particular questions. What questions in Africa are we trying to answer, and what are the disciplines for us to answer those questions? Khadija, follow up. <laughs> no, that's just such a fantastic response. It's a fantastic response, and it it just makes me think about the project and the way that. Europe's epistemological projects locate them and have sought to rationalize the possibilities of Europe's expansion, the possibilities of Euro's political project, and the sort of location of Europe and the Americas and what we call the imperial core now as the center of the world and actually the center of the universe, if mm -hmm. we want to be expansive. But in the context of Africa, the epistemic violence exists in the eradication of the question of Africa, the eradication of the histories, the interconnectedness of the histories and our own epistemic paradigms. And I mean, I think about what it meant, what it means to even be a student in the context of Africa, right? What it means to grow up in Ghana, what it means to go to a Ghanaian school and the lack of that inclusion of the complexity of the African question, the yeah. imagination and the imaginative possibilities that were offered in my social studies class, for example, weren't what was offered in my sociology or philosophy class that I took in the UK, where we're dealing with these sort of large political questions and large questions that sought to legitimize what the British state was and what the British imaginary is. And in Africa, I find that there is a complete lack of imagination. There is a complete removal of the imaginative possibilities that allow for us to even consider an African ep um, episteme or consider the multiplicity of African epistemes. So yeah, thank you for that, for that very, very great kind of historical and contextual response to the question of our, of our hauntings. And I think that question is a question that can be expansive too, insofar as how do we respond then? How do we respond? How, how do you respond? I, I mean, that that's actually is, um, I think, if there is a, a collective failure, and, and this is the final admonition, right? Each generation after relative obscurity must define its mission, fulfill it or betray it, right? We actually have dropped the ball. I don't want to say betrayal, but we have dropped the ball, right? So, so this is it. Egyptians write for journals in America and England. Ghanaians do. Guineans do. 
South Africans do. Yes, we do have a little, a few magazines, in, uh, journals in Africa, but disciplinary, disciplinary, the way they are conceived, is actually also for these people, right? What choices do we have? We are like our children, the athletes. If you become good, you go serve over there. You play to the gallery over there to entertain them and their ideas, right? The Cold War collapses. The situation collapses. I'm sorry, the Cold War ends. What do we do? Carnegie, Rockefeller, everybody offers grants to do civil society. So we all do civil society. Then the 1990s, Argentina, Chile, everybody, all the dictators for the democracy, we all do grants for democratic transition. And then South Africa, whatever, and et cetera, et cetera, everybody does traditional justice. But we are all good, we are erudite. The best theories in those domains are Africans, but they are not our questions. It's not that we are not erudite, right? What is Sergio, whatever his name is, the footballer today, right? Where are they all? They're trained and they go there. The smarter you are in Africa, the less, the less relevant you are to Africa, you go to an American university, as I am. Let's not pretend. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> as I am, right? So when we say Kwame Nkrumah, Sekuture, whatever, we only can judge one thing. Oh, human rights this, blah, blah, blah. Right? Since he brought it up, I have to go back to that. I was actually saddened two weeks ago. One of the greatest intellectuals who had a great prize in France, Monenembo, writes about Sekuture and he talks about the Kambuaro as Auschwitz. Right? Auschwitz, you know, the Holocaust, the, it, it's an entire state project in which an entire society culturally was prepared for, for to exterminate the Jews. Whatever you say about Sekuture, the entire population of Guinea was not in it. And I felt offended. You know, there was a project to establish the period in Guinea in which everybody should be involved because culturally we have been, and theologically, we have something against this thing that must be eradicated, which I call the period. It's one of the grossest and crudest analogies. If you liken it to Guantanamo, yes, since 9-11 people, they just released the, the last person two weeks ago. Since 9-11, more than 20 people were held dead without trial. Abu Ghraib is an analogy, of course, because we are operating the modern state, where the modern state has enemies, friends and enemies, and et cetera, going back to Schmidt earlier. Yes, the modern state, every single one of them, democratic or not, is capable of horrendous crimes. And they happen in Guinea. Nkrumah arrested his opponent. They happen there too. Why go to Auschwitz, right? But the reason is, obviously, and I know the reason, that fellow leaves France to go to Guinea every day to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Charles de Gaulle is the one who killed, massacred, mauled the soldiers from Senegal, from West Africa, who were in Senegal, who went to fight for France. On V-Day, the day of European liberation, May 8, 1948, France slaughtered more than 60,000 Muslims in Algeria. The day the Americans came in August to come to, to, into Paris, the goal issued a decree that Africans should be hidden from public view. It's called Blanchir l'Armée. It's a decree, it's real. They put Africans away because they didn't want history to report that black people freed France. He goes from, from South de Gaulle Airport to go to Guinea. He's objecting to the fact that somebody named the, the airport in Guinea Secretary. I mean, where do we live, right? Which is not to, to right? The project of state making, post-colonial state making, we have to indict element dimensions of it, obviously, because they're two committed crimes. I am absolutely comfortable with that. But there was an imaginary, there was a commitment that we are lacking today that they have no matter what we say today. Nkrumah had an idea of Africa, whatever his feelings. So did Sekuture. You know what? They did not embezzle. So Nkrumah died, they said they had golden beds and they were hidden somewhere, they didn't find it. Sekuture, 
they did it, right? We take the commitment and we must face the post-colonial state. Of course, a lot of things went wrong. That, absolutely. But the fellow I'm talking about who wrote about Ashwish, the novel for which he got great prizes everywhere around the world, is the one in which he imagines Olivier de Sandeva, who is a colonial officer in Guinea, he imagined a different encounter between colonial rulers and Africans. If you can imagine, allow yourself to imagine life beyond empire and et cetera, to see what would have life we could have had, had the encounter been different. Can we imagine what we would have had if we didn't have the post-colonial state the way it was, and if the Cold War had not been forced upon us to pit one against another? Can we imagine that life? Can you take their commitment? Can you take, can we accept the visions of Africa and go with that while we indict the state and, and, and the, the kind of policies that went with that? But what those people had was a commitment for Africa. What they had in the context in which they, they evolved, very concrete ideas for Africa. Our failures today to do that for our time is not a function of their own failures. Their own failures must be judged in the context when they evolved. How was in our context? We've spent too much time blaming them for what we have not been able to do. Sorry, that was such a powerful answer and powerful response. Thank you so much. Powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for someone, myself, Khadija, and, and many of my friends who see themselves going through American institutions with their eyes on the continent still, with their eyes still with their feelings and we are connected to the continent in a visceral way and we do see our work wanting to speak to Africa or do work on the continent. What kind of advice will you give to young people going through this institutional process in the in, in the West but have eyes set on Africa? What are some of the things we should be thinking about and some of the questions we should be asking? Blyden, Blyden, Alexander Cromwell, a lot of those people, he's the one, by the way, who tried to create the first Negro Academy, Alexander Cromwell. Blyden talked about Africans, African-Americans, African-born intellectuals in the diaspora in the manner that he, he reflected through, that, through the Jewish diaspora and et cetera. Those people, those people knew something that we misread today. We misread their commitment to the African and Black diaspora as being strictly about Black people and Africans. But what they all knew was something of the material condition of Black people on this planet. Having been the first modern diaspora, not the ancient diaspora that you use, but the modern diaspora, right? Our displacement and enslavement is the labor of the new world. That's the one on the, the body upon which capital is predicated, and et cetera, et cetera. That condition have allowed us, and this is where MS is correct, to see the world for what it is. Now you can read MS there, you can go to those uh, uh, revolutionaries in, 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 in Palmares, in Haiti, and et cetera. You can read Glissant and all those things. It is not in the skin. It is actually in our condition that we have been the only people to envisage both in thought and institution. And I begin with institutions with Palmares, Haiti, and et cetera. And in thought, you can go from, again, Palmares, Haiti, uh, Martel Turking, Nelson Mandela, and et cetera, et cetera, to imagine that we, we are willing not to cause death to other people so we can survive, but to be willing to die so that we can give other people to die, not only to get freedom for ourselves, but to die, to give that, that we will die for so that other people may have that for which we, no, we are willing to die so that other people might wish, to, so that other people might have that for which we are died, we are willing to die for, for ourselves. Abnegation. It is in, in the thought of the African descended diaspora for four centuries it has existed. We have 
the best pros about freedom on this planet today, given our condition. It's not predicated on being chosen. It's not predicated on the word of God. It's predicated on understanding precisely our dilemmas as human beings and for, for seeing the modern world be made on our backs, for being the only body that is still today on a sort of around which there's a question in the public square, to be the body that is surveilled and who's up out of which to surveil as all our systems of policing emanated, we have been able to see the human at its worst and been able to propose ideas for this planet that still today remain uninvestigated because we have been so lazy following other people in the disciplinary question and forgetting what we have been. We gave everybody democracy, including America. America would not have had democracy without black. We have the best process of freedom. We don't know it because we are so obsessed, which is why I, I, I have grown to put the, the hermeneutic of, of the radical in bracket, the hermeneutic of the critical in bracket. I don't want to critique anymore. What have we done is the question. Because we have Palmares created a Republican form that has not been emulated to date in this world. The only one that was both a Republic and non-imperial, the only one where ethnicity, race, and religion did not matter, the only one, and it functioned longer than the Soviet Union. Both Mandela and, 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 and King said that their freedom was not just for black people, it was for humanity. And one of them went to jail for 27 years, the other one was assassinated for his ideas. There's something about the, the black, the condition of the black of black people and the mood I was talking about earlier that has given us the ability to entertain different imaginaries. They are utopias, but I defend them because they are utopias that have actually institutional legs to stand on and experience and bodies and traditions behind them. Those utopias are the better utopias. I don't know about you, Mamadou, but are you deeply rethinking um... <laughs> Cedric's interventions <laughs> the materiality of the black condition which orientates it to a kind of revolutionary and imaginative possibility and I think in that laying out a lot of what has been the feature most point of my politics and the tensions in my politics and my ability to try and understand and try to engage have really been put into focus you know is the at the depths, and we've had these discussions, Mamadou, I think we know that the condition and the realities of Blackness historically and up until this trajectory have been one of being witness and subject to a kind of brutality in reality, brutality in the symbolic, brutality in the imaginary and the limitations of our imaginary like um, potentials being a sort of fixture of the state. But we both have this deep desire and deep love for humanity that... I feel like it's almost metaphysical sometimes. I'm like, I can't explain why. I just know that having lived through poverty, having seen poverty, having experienced the sort of hauntings of colonial and post-colonial and you know neo-colonial legacies, that my imagination for the world is that we have to be able to do better and we can do better. And in the tradition of, of the scholars that we all kind of recognize and who are central to our thought we see we feel that affect we feel that essence but we um, we have done better not to interrupt you that's the thing it's because yeah. we don't know it mm -hmm. again if you're in political science just think you know the discipline doesn't allow you to get there right historians have done pre-colonial 
colonial, post-colonial, and etc., as if we were ever cut from the world. But one, one of the, the, the errors I think we make today is actually to have allowed Europe to claim things that you should not claim, right? I always remember young Africans that for, from Diogenes onward, Peter Gores, Thales, all of them, everyone went to Africa. None of them went to Sweden. Sweden claims, claims to Greek traditions, but their interlocutors were Africans. And we, we sit there because Europeans, right? Uh, 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 uh. is going to kill me for this because I always tell him, keep the archives, core of the canons. <laughs> yep. It is the exegesis they made of those canons that are the problem. Of those archives, I'm sorry, that are the problem. The archives were us. Whether they were those that went to Europe, those that came from the Abyssinian Empire, those of, of Andalusia, of Timbuktu, and etc., they are ours. Why do we consider that they, these things are theirs? No. What they made of them is actually what is horrible. What they have made of those archives is, is contemptible, horrible. We should reclaim them because there's more in it. What the Tijanis, my friend, is no longer is not here, here, made of that is actually somewhat different. What the, 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 the Alkuntis in Timbuktu made of those canons was somewhat different. But the slaves who were taken from Africa who were sent to Spalmares out of memory could actually imagine a different world without, without having the books in their hand could from their body and their senses imagine that there was something utterly wrong in the world that was imposed upon them and chose to have a universe in which, which was still the only entity on, in the new world, Palmares, where Native Americans voluntarily joined and were equal to everybody and where they were free citizens, free and equal citizens. Palmares remains the only one still today. Black people, we are wasting our time chasing texts, canons that, okay, I, I will not see what I'm thinking. <laughs> Let's just go back to the canons. <laughs> Let's just go back to our archives and get from them what we need to get. Yeah. Because we need to. But surely the disciplines have to answer our own questions. It's not to dispense with other people's questions. It is our own. They have given them answers. You can speak of the East India Company and go to Magna Carta and go to the, the long parliament, the short parliament and all that stuff without talking about the murders of Hindus and etc. etc. Nor should you expect them to say that. You shouldn't, right? There is no, there is no national economy until after World War II. The economy had been global before that, but it was imperial. We invent globalization later to pretend that the world is only coming together now. It was together. The French Contabilité Nationale, national accounting, GDP, they didn't emerge until after World War II because France did not have an economy. What was that which was in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire was French. That which was in India was, was English, British, right? But we have invented the GDP and we chase GDP as somebody God-given thing. We have to have GDP, high GDP, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right? But that woman in the market in Kumasi, in her own sober way, knows that even money is not constant. If you bring your 50 CD to the market, with a woman who has two children on her back, one in hand, one in, on the back, who wants to buy the same rice as you, the woman at the market in Kumasi will give you one measure, what the price is, and the one who has the babies, she will give them this what the price is, and then she will put her hand in the rice and give her extra. Because she understands that those 50 cities to you and to that woman who has two children should not mean the same. Measure in the same way, should not be the same. That is why Adam Smith talked about the political economy as moral economies. We conflate today market and economies. We conflate, right, 
contract with a country. What is an economy? The material basis of society. What are the moral predicates of that? What are we doing? That's what I'm saying. We don't have we don't have knowledge for ourselves. Everything we do within the disciplines that we have do not amount to anything for us. Which doesn't mean that we are not erudite. God knows we have a lot of smart Africans roaming this planet. But what are our questions? What is our diagnosis of ourselves? What are we looking for? We can critique the world however we want, but what are we looking for? Exactly. Is the, is the woman in Kumasi, the market, is he a useful economic agent to study? Yes, that's where Adam Smith went. He went to Yorkshire, right? We go to the World Bank to find out what econ an economy should be. Good luck on that. <laughs> but, oh, gosh. There's just so much to think about and unpack. And it just makes me think about like the interwovenness of the European statecraft and its ability to legitimize itself by telling us it's the only credible entity and delegitimizing all else. And, and again, this is the question of how the institutionalization of what is the reality and the materiality of the everyday has been such a successful project of European domination. So much so that in the African condition now, and as much as I engage with sort of African politics, especially in the, the current moment in, in, you know, in Ghana, I think about how so many of our so-called leaders are so willing to give up, are so willing to sell out, are so willing to denigrate what is African for the, for the fake legitimacy or for their perceived legitimacy of what is else, what is elsewhere. There is that, but you're also being overly harsh because other people don't know. <laughs> Would they know? You know, this is the thing. Europe, this is what we, we refuse to understand. Europe spent two centuries looking backward. It's called nostalgia. Going back to the Greeks and the, 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 the Romans to give themselves from the Greeks democracy or uh, other institutions uh, 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 of, you know, civil society, blah, 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 wisdom, all of the rest, and look to the Romans to give themselves laws. Right, and then they made the state, and they looked to the church for the structure of the state and bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Two centuries, and then they spent another two centuries. They called the Enlightenment, creating a utopia for themselves. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's the utopia in which we live today, but it's a dystopia for seventy percent of the world population. Right now, somebody tells you every time you want to go back and say, "By the way, these questions in Africa when they were posed in the seventeenth century, how they were were they answered?" Somebody tells you you are either a culturalist or you are in nostalgia. But you're not looking to say everything was great. Nobody says that. You know, we had slavery, we had the awful thing, we have caste systems and etc. But they had answers to something. And if you want to project, you want to go back and, and give yourself new imaginaries, they say that's utopia, right? Capitalism is a everyday ongoing utopia. Everybody hopes that they will make it tomorrow. Capitalism is a utopia. It's just dystopic for 90% of people who are in it, unless you are of the bourgeoisie, the capitalist, whatever class, or you are a, a professor like me at Cornell University and then you have your retirement on Wall Street. I mean, <laughs> nobody else believes that utopia, right? Mm -hmm. And even that utopia can turn into a nightmare the day the Wall Street collapses. Mm -hmm. When was utopia actually a bad thing? And when was taking stock become a bad thing and become nostalgia? No, that's because we don't know, we don't know how to formulate our own question. We don't know how to, how, how to, to, right? To, to look for our own imaginaries and etc. Yes, of course. And we listen to other people. Oh, you know, you are too much. That's so. No, 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 my friend. We are not doing anything that you didn't do. Two centuries of nostalgia is called the Renaissance. And two centuries of utopia is called the, the, the Enlightenment. And you don't want me to think about tomorrow? 
but you want me to leave, to leave Wall Street, tell me what tomorrow is going to be like. And every day I see the wealth gap, the whatever, and, and the destitution, ecological, human, social, psychic, whatever. And, and you want, that is, that ain't utopia, that's dystopia. I want utopia. Indeed, you want to carry on with your thought? <laughs> yeah, just like, you know, how do we, and I suppose the question here is like, you know, here we are, three African scholars, <laughs> who are existing in the West, existing in the, you know, you know, creations of a, of a utopia on the dystopia of, you know, those who came before us. And I guess the question for me is how do we, I suppose, with the complexity of Africa's current political climate and political circumstances engage in that work? How do we do that work? How do we, how do we, you know, how do we create that imaginative possibility? How do we even create the space for our own nostalgia, for the purposes of our own imagination, especially on the continent, you know, not, not in our, you know, um, my, I, my I, mortgage I can, house. Say, I can just say that I'm giving, this one I can say here on your platform, I'm giving the Africa Day lecture this year and it's going to be on that question. And I'm, yes. I'm going to make it very, very concrete. And, and I'm going to make it as a challenge for you all. I'm an old man now. You see, it's all white. So it's for you all. <laughs> but I, I, I am I'm done with speeches. Though this is also is a speech. But I, I actually want to be as concrete and granular as you can be yeah. about how we answer those questions and the means to that question. And they are very simple. And I want to make it for the whole continent. Yes. On Africa Day speech. I think we should. Yeah. It's not that difficult. We just have stopped. We, we, at some point, we stopped thinking about tomorrow and started living in, in today. And somebody told us that self-gratification self-gratif- was paradise, right? Like I told somebody who once asked me, no disrespect to the author, have you read in my father's house? And I said, I wish that house was my father's too. But that was my answer to that, right? Which was not a disrespect. It was simply to say that, that we need something beyond erudition. It's no longer that. And Apia is, of course, a erudite. And I'm not, I, I really said that very gingerly that, this is no disrespect, right? But erudition is not the end of it because that's about us. Mamoudou Tal is already an erudite. I, I wish. No woman in Senegal, in the market in, in, in Sandaga, in Senegal, can do anything with his erudition. He doesn't do a thing for them. Mm. It impresses people at, at uh, LSE, of course, <laughs> or wherever he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing because I went to LSE. <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Could you do anything else or how are you feeling? No, I'm just basking in the, you know, the potency of of everything that we've I've been able to hear today. And I'm going to be thinking about it for a very long time. No, thank you so much, Professor Grover. Again, I'm sure this will be an ongoing conversation. I kind of want to just, even though I wanted to discuss as, or this topic being the role of the African intellectual, I think before we even get to that concretize, we have to even just, what are the questions we're trying to answer? What are the things? What's the diagnosis of the condition? So we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time and I'll see you soon. Uh, well, thank you. And, and, and I, I deliberately wanted to talk about this before we actually talk about the role because I'm going to, I've been thinking about that since that's what I want to talk about this year during my, my Africa Day speech. But we have to think, we have to talk about the role of the African intellectual. Yeah. yeah. But it's not it's not a straightforward path. And I wanted to clear the field first before we actually yeah. start thinking about what the role should be. Thank you. Thank you.